Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, Director of Global Talent Development at Framestore, and welcome to the Framestore Podcast, a learning and talent development focused podcast made by Framestore for Framestore. This week's special guest is visual effects supervisor and creative director, Russell Dodgson. Russell agrees to share his experiences, learnings, and five years of his working life on all three seasons of his dark materials. Joining us for this week's episodes as co-host is London-based VFX production coordinator, Sana Rahman, who also works on HDM with Russell. This is a great episode, so settle in, get comfy, and enjoy episode 14, part one, the Framestore podcast with Russell Dodgson. Welcome back to the Framestore podcast, episode 14, part one. Each week, we invite both a guest from our global Framestore community and a co-host with a keen interest in our guest's craft, work or career path, and we let the magic happen. We split each episode in two parts across the week. On today's episode, I warm them up by inviting our guest to the Framestore podcast daily session, our 13-question grilling, followed by Thursday's second part, where our co-host leads a deeper dive into why we invited them on the pod in the first place. On this week's episodes, we invite visual effects supervisor and sometime director Russell Dodgson to take on the dailies. With a career spanning two decades, Russell is best known for his five-year opus as director and soup on all three seasons of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Joining us for this week's episodes as co-host is London-based VFX production coordinator Sana Rahman, who also worked on the last season of His Dark Materials. Welcome, Russell and Sana Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Very good, thank you. I'm looking forward to you warming me up. I will do my best. I'm going to warm you up, absolutely, as will Sana in episode two. (laughs) I guess I'll cut to the chase. Five years, that's a big chunk of time to be attached to any project, let alone one project. How does it feel to come to the end of such a a massive, iconic show such as his Dark Materials? Uh, It's um, a combination of deep catharsis, and also staring into the void that is the future. I think that's how I'd describe it. Beautifully put. When I took on the first season, I didn't know I'd end up doing it for five years, but there's no way I could have let it finish without actually seeing it through. So yeah, mostly catharsis. Catharsis, I love that. Yeah. And looking back, actually, you touched on kind of the early stages. I mean, I'm interested, and I'm sure our listeners are interested, and I'm sure Sana's interested as well, in what set of circumstances brought you to that show in the early days, season one? Because we're going back a bit now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I think around the time when that came in, we'd only just started getting back into episodic. We were mostly doing the episodic through the IA division. And I just finished doing, I think, a Black Mirror or a second season of a National Geographic documentary. And then ironically, when I started out years and years ago, one of my favourite books of all time was His Dark Materials. And then the movie came out. And I was like, oh, man, I'm never going to get to work on that film. And then ironically, it sort of landed on our lap. Joel Collins, who's the production designer on Dark Materials and was the production designer on Black Mirror, he sort of very much wanted the showrunner to come in and meet me and the team. And we had a bunch of really, really good meetings and our sensibilities all definitely aligned. And it just sort of became a bit of a no-brainer, apart from, you know, the fact that I'd have to be away from family quite a lot. How do you find that? I mean, again, it's such a massive period of time. I think we touched on it in my early months at Framestore about that distance from loved ones during such a intense shoot, set of shoots, I guess, over three seasons, over five years. Yeah, it's complicated, I think. I mean, luckily, I have a very supporting wife and, and lovely kids. I mean, I think the hardest part was that my youngest daughter was six months when we started and now is five and a half now finished. So it's nearly the entire lifetime of a person. Yeah, I think, I mean, the hard stuff is just knowing that you potentially can miss things and the other hard thing is you sort of it's such an extreme situation when you're filming and it's so all-encompassing that you sort of have to try and like make sure you maintain a bit of a shared experience with your family as well and it's difficult but you know you have to it's what it is sadly are you the kind of person that has family on the shoot with you or do you kind of keep those worlds very separate? I think it really depends on on school really I mean what we what we did is I was very fortunate that I had a really lovely production side house when I was up in Cardiff 
So the family would come up and stay in the summers. They would come and stay at half term. They'd come up, get to look around the set, sit on the back of a big polar bear, do all of those fun things that you don't normally get to do in life. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I still, I still came home every weekend, apart from the ones when I was really, really, really tired. Yeah. Um, so it's not the same as being away in another country for five years. Of course. But yeah, they definitely came up a lot. We actually got very lucky in the pandemic because we the, the summer when it was locked down was also when I had a massive townhouse in Cardiff that I could sort of park up in. So it was actually really good fortune. So it was it was a it was a you know in all a really great experience. My family got to be around for a lot of it. I want to make it sound like I was in a cave somewhere, not speaking to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You talked about reading the book and being a fan because that's one going to be one of my questions. Was you know were you familiar with it as a piece of literature? And one of my questions is around almost the creative influence and where that creative influence was coming from. Because of course you've got showrunners, you've got I imagine Philip Pullman's involved in some way, shape, or form because it's his baby. Just on a day to day, and again speaking very broadly across. Yeah, you know, five year period. You know, where was the creative influence coming? Because I know not only were you doing the VFX souping traditionally, but you also dabbled into some actual part episode directing, if that's fair to say, Russell. I'd love to hear about that experience. Yeah, I think the creative part of it is always different depending on how a show is set up. Television is very different to film as well because of the number of episodes that you deal with and the kind of slightly transient nature of the directors. They kind of come in, shoot their section and leave. This show was really lovely, actually, because the showrunner, Jane, she knew that the project was so big and sprawling that she created a group of individuals who she sort of saw as her showrunning team who she would trust and actually give agency to make decisions and and she and sort of trusted them to make things happen. I think that team formed pretty quickly at the beginning and they were very open and kind to letting me sort of have a seat at that table. Really the whole exercise and the whole exercise of VFX supervision anyway is all about trust building and, and doubling down on that and saying you can trust me and I will deliver for you and then you can trust me further. That relationship grew really, really well. In the first season, I did a tiny bit of directing, but by the time we got to the third, they trusted me to do more and relied on me to do more, which was lovely, you know. And will we see uh, more of that going forward now that you're looking into that void, as you said earlier, Russell? You know, directing-wise, is that something you're looking to flex? I like to think it comes pretty naturally. I actually sort of more started out in that space years and years and years ago and then went away from it and then have found my way back to it. And it's a it's a sort of space that I find quite easy to sort of fill. But really, it, like, like I said, if someone trusts me to do it, I will do it. Uh, and Sana, what was your role on the third, uh, the third season that you came in on? Because I know you bumped into Russell occasionally, I'm sure. Yeah, so I was helping coordinate the animation department. So we were delivering basically the golden monkey, Pan, helping create the Malifas. And then I, once we wrapped up and delivered animation, I moved on to help with the lighting department. So it was a lot of focus on the cloud and mountains, so a lot of episode seven material. And yeah, that was my time on the show. Pretty important job on an animation heavy show, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's lots I want to get into with, with this episode because, you know, clearly an absolute ton of creature work in his start materials, which is Framestore's calling card. And, you know, all those creative influences, approaches, highs and lows, challenges, etc. But I kind of think we should just get into the Framestore dailies and I'm sure we'll tease out a lot of those stories if that's okay with you both. So, Russell, obviously you're going to be the subject of the dailies. Sonny, you get to take a back seat, but I will be calling on you occasionally so you don't get to turn your camera off or your, uh, or your mic. <laughs> I'll be here. So I'm going to drop the big dramatic sound effect. And we're into the dailies. I always establish this in my intro, but I'm going to ask it again, Russell, which is who, where, what? Who are you? Where are you? And what are you working on? If you can talk about it, are you still in anticipation of what, what the next job is? Sure. So I am uh, Russell Dodgson and I am the, a VFX supervisor and one of the creative directors of the episodic team. Uh, what was the second one? Where am I? I'm in Tooting Beck in uh, sunny South London. Ah, Tooting. Exactly. Yeah. Loving it. And then what is a question mark? At the moment, I'm doing PR wrap ups, podcasts, bits of other press and uh, sort of bidding new shows. I'm just trying to find that right one that gets me excited again. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's an exciting time, I'm sure. And the one thing I always ask on this podcast is about people's roles. And we talk a lot about VFX souping and VFX supervisor work on the pod. But I'd love to get your take on, you know, what it is a VFX supervisor is called on to do. I mean, I've done lots of interviews with various soups and I always get a sense that you're that kind of eye in, in the storm and you're in earshot of everything happening on any given day. But I'd love to get your take, Russ. 
Yeah, sure. I think I think there's lots of different types of VFX supervisor, which is why it's a great role. And I think there's a lot of room for different types of skills or backgrounds. And and I think also different projects require different things as well. Like you get projects that have auteur directors who have got an incredibly strong sense of style and design and know exactly what they want, what they want. And your job is to handhold them through the technical execution of that. You get other shows where you are required to get much more involved in story and helping to use the visual effects in the best way possible to get the narrative across, which is, I think, more of the kind of projects that I've managed to land myself on. And I think a real big part of it is just to do with soft skills and to do with being able to take a load of people on a journey with you and try and make everybody feel valued, make everybody feel like they've got as much agency as you can possibly give them. Uh, I think when you're, I think on the client side, you know, you have to, you have to know and understand the depth of pain that happens on the client side. It's very easy to see clients as, as a problem, but they're not. They are people with problems, and they are trying to, and you are part of trying to solve those problems for them. So I think the more you understand the background of production design, screenwriting, every single portion of that side of making a film or a TV show or a immersive experience, whatever it might be, everybody you're dealing with as a person. Those people have work problems. Those people have life problems, you know, and you have to remember that that's what you're dealing with. You're not dealing with a machine. And then down from you, or and I'd say not down from me, I'd say across from me because I just basically work with a load of people that are probably more talented than I am. But I just happen to have a skill set that fits to being the translation layer between people with kind of creative desires. Some of them are clear and some of them aren't. And a crew of uber talented people who I need to kind of shepherd them to make sure that the the content fits the brief. That's how I would describe what I think is good supervision. It is it is a bona fide leadership role, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it absolutely is. I think I, I think you can make the mistake of thinking it's about technology or it's about art only, but it's really a people game. Being a being a, especially being a client side VFX supervisor, because I can you know they always say that you should hire to your weaknesses. And when you do a visual effects show, everything is a weakness because everything is hard. So, you know, I rely completely on a team of people around me. And that's why I actually really wanted to correct. It's not below you. It's it's people alongside you that you're taking with you. The historic materials wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the people making it. It probably could happen without me, to be honest. <laughs> you raise a really good point. And we've, this has come up a lot in the podcast, actually, a lot of previous episodes. I mean, I'll cite uh, one of our recent episodes, the Matt Hughes episode, when we talked about management and leadership and particularly kind of in his global role. And he said exactly the same thing. You know, you can't possibly be the expert on everything, but you know how to communicate and knit people together and play to people's strengths. Because, you know, your, your point around hiring to your weaknesses or, you know, always hiring people that are essentially better than you in certain areas, I think is is a really powerful leadership tool that people often forget. I think I, I think another thing that can be hugely overlooked and I think can come up in some of the frictions or some of the things that people get annoyed about when they're working on a project, especially if someone thinks that they know how to do a job better than the supervisor. And the thing that, and which honestly is probably true a lot of the time because supervision is about making decisions and then trying to iterate on that decision over time to get it into the right place. Even if it was slightly wrong, you can steer it in the right way. But the thing about supervising as well is you're basically in a position where you are prepared to take accountability. And I think accountability is a big word that gets missed out. But I think it's kind of at the heart of everything. Like I've always been prepared to put my neck on the line and be accountable for huge problems. And I've often had lots of people around me, and actually not particularly at Framestore at all, where there's a lot of people saying, why don't you do it this way? Or you should have done it that way. But those people are never prepared to take accountability. And it's accountability that leads you to the highs and really big lows. And being successful in this role is just about having a good batting average because you never get it right all the time. <laughs> really, really good point, actually. Thank you. In terms of tenure, Russell, we've talked about, obviously, I talked broadly about two decades, but how long have you been at Framestore and how long have you been in the, the industry? So we get a sense of how long you've been in the game, Russell. I think it depends how you define the game. <laughs> I find it really hard to remember how long I've been at Framestore. I know it's more than 10 years and everything after that just seems to not really matter, really. It's just good experience with good people. I, I joined Framestore really because I had a particular set of skills using Nuke very early on before a lot of other people did, especially in the commercials world. So I actually came over to the commercials division a long, long time ago and 
was brought in to kind of do a project with Nuke for the first time. It was DJ Hero, which was a uh, animated intro for a video game at the time. And it was the first project we'd done with Nuke. I got brought in to do that. Then that just sort of snowballed, really. I then did, I then worked as one of two compositors on the um, Deathly Hallow sequence for Harry Potter, which is one of my favorite things I've ever worked on. And then that just kind of grew. It sort of proved its worth in Nuke. And that sort of evolved into a Nuke department, which then evolved into a global Nuke department. And then, you know, and that kind of snowballed. And I kind of was sort of involved with lots of other people in building those things out over time. But before that, I actually had my own company for a while with my best friend, who's a director of photography. And we very strangely, what we did is we we used to plan, storyboard, direct, shoot, and then I would supervise the post-production on launch movies for cities that were being built in the Middle East. So, you know, the mile around the bottom of the Burj Dubai Tower, that would be, we would go and shoot lifestyle, which I would direct, lifestyle footage for that. And then we'd put that together, we'd visualize the Burj and all the things around it and all of the different buildings, make sort of five, six minute lifestyle videos and then, you know, give them to our clients. But I was doing that when I was 25, maybe. Only a few years ago, Russell, eh? Yeah, no, I looked a lot more palatable then. Um, <laughs> the, um, but yeah, so, so actually, I mean, really, I, like, that's, I guess that's kind of my point. I came out of college, I did editing at college and then and, and actual sort of general media studies, a bit of screenwriting came out had a very sort of side tangential time for about three, four years as a break dancer. No further questions on that, but it is actually does actually explain my love of movement. Oh, I don't know. About that. I can't promise anything. <laughs> okay, fine. That's awesome. And then, yeah. And, and then, then, then me and my best friend started a business, did that stuff. And actually I then, so that's where I sort of sidestepped. So I started using Nuke in that business and then shifted across the frame store. So, sorry, I have to ask about the break dancing, Russell. <laughs> I'm going to terminate the interview here. Were you in a crew? I used to, I, I, I used to do it. Amazing. I used to do it. Ah, I was okay. So good. That's the answer. I was very much so. And uh, yeah, I was in a few. And, um, and I, I would say, you know, I, I always think that, I think the things that you do outside of your work often define what it is you love about your job. I think that anyway. So I grew up doing boxing, Thai boxing and breakdancing, all things that involve loads of movement and rhythm and timing and that's everything and that's the way that I see every single sequence that I work on every shot whether I'm directing something or whether I'm doing supervision I'm just looking for rhythm movement and timing that's it and I think I love that because I because I have a physical understanding of it that's kind of in me from my youth and I just sort of transfer that into what I do for a job yeah talk a lot about there's this whole concept of being t-shaped i think i've spoken about it on previous podcasts where you've kind of got the stuff you do for a living essentially the stuff that pays the bills and then you've got the almost the horizontal t at the top of the vertical which is all the stuff that makes you interesting <laughs> you know makes you you and actually what you said there applies to both being a, a richly charactered individual but also actually how it applies to like you say animation and the work that we do and movement and uh, I think Thai boxing and, and breakdancing absolutely speak to that. This is why I love this podcast is you find stuff out about people that I otherwise would have never have found out. Probably would have eventually Russell but thank you for sharing that that's brilliant. That's all right no worries. That speaks neatly into our next question which is about kind of your break in the industry and uh, a lot of people consider the break being kind of like the, the break in the visual effects industry. What would you consider to be the moment where you thought right this is what I absolutely want to do for a long period of time? Mine is actually really random, and I was sure that I wanted to do it before I'd ever really done it. And that was, do you remember, you remember DVD extras? Remember those back in the day? Oh, yes, of course. I love a DVD extra. I kind of like them more than most of the films. I watched the DVD extras for Black Hawk Down. Oh, wow. A long, long time ago. And I, and I had been editing, done loads of editing in college, bought a whole bunch of editing equipment. My cousin's an editor at the BBC, does natural history documentaries. And I'd been and sat with him and worked with him. And I always really loved it. But I always felt like for me, there was something missing. And then I watched Black Hawk Down where basically they just had people doing crowd systems and cool shots using flames. And I was like, I want to do that. Wicked, wicked. That takes me back. I can remember it very, very specifically. Yeah, I've talked about DVD extras. Yeah, there was such an in, in sort of inspiring thing to have around at that time. And yeah, I can very clearly remember sitting in my room watching that and going, I want to do that. And like 20 minutes later, I was looking online for a course at Bournemouth University and then I was on it five months later. That is so cool. And strangely, I, I didn't have a lot to show when I got into Bournemouth. So what I did was I had a bunch of stuff I'd edited and a bunch of short films I'd done. I had no visual effects. So what I did was I thought, well, you know, 
probably a bit naively, I sort of, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do with three dimensionality. So what I did do is also was when I was young is I did a lot of wood carving and sort of wood sculpture. So I just did a bunch of that and showed them photos of it. Because I thought, you know, it's a transferable skill, surely. It's about visualizing objects. So it's about sharpening an eye, isn't it, as well? It's like they talk a lot about kind of 2D work and, and photography and lighting, and it's all about having an appreciation for the craft as well, right? I also think a huge portion of all of this stuff comes down to just whether or not you're interested enough just to do it without someone asking you. I think that's the thing. Like, lots of people go, like, I want to be a screenwriter. Well, you know, there's been a pencil and paper for a long time. So if you haven't done it, there's zero excuses. You haven't had a go. I always think you can you can teach skills, but you can't teach character. You know, I think that's always been my sort of hiring principle. If people seem like they've got the character to learn, develop and be collaborative. And those people would always gravitate towards being able to learn skills quite easily. It's definitely a marriage of the two, isn't it? It's, again, a regular theme on, in these conversations I've been having around you know, you can teach the tech, you can teach the software, you can teach somebody to play the piano and the guitar, but it's something that gives it that extra flourish or that extra kind of epicness is that drive passion ideas, actually care for the for the work rather than just doing it as a kind of almost transaction, if that makes sense. It's really interesting. Yeah, and I think having a perspective on it as well, like if you've got a view on what you're making, whether it's shared or not doesn't really matter. It means you've got you've got passion. Yeah, true. Is there something in there about being almost culturally and artistically literate? So caring about cinema of the past, theatre, art, culture, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I, I hate to be exclusive because some people haven't had the fortune of having access to all of that stuff, yet they can still have a brilliant imagination or like a lot of desire. So yeah, I think it's really great to have all those things. Yeah, I think brilliant, you know, brilliance comes from all different places, right? So It's not a prerequisite. Thank you, Russell. Super interesting. And uh, thank you for bringing up the DVD extras because that just takes me back to a, a bygone era where you would buy DVDs for that second disc with the documentary on, with the breakdowns, with the interviews. It was just, yeah, good times. Uh, there was something about the fact that you collected them as well that made it so much more special. But I, strangely, when I watch stuff streaming and it says it has extra content, I never watch it. I don't think it's well because I've got less interest. I think it's that before you would buy a DVD and you wanted to like wring every bit of sort of value out of it. Whereas now I've got two choices, right? I finish watching that show. I can watch more about that show or just start watching another show straight away. Um, so we're moving into all things frame store for a short uh, element of uh, the questions, Russell. And uh, question four is what's the best thing about being part of frame store? It's the big cuddly cheesy question. I mean, it's, I'm trying to find a non cheesy answer, but it's not really possible. Um, it's just people. It's people. I've been at Framestore for a long time. I only planned on being there for a year. There's a reason why I'm still there. It's pretty simple. And, you know, I'm not living in a mansion, so it's probably the people. I think that's really what it comes down to. I think from my experience, Framestore is run in a very people-first, artist-first, human way. I've never really been blindsided by something really unethical or really unkind that the company's ever done or even through the hard times that have happened sort of recently they've been I think really fair balanced and open I think to me one of the saddest things actually is that with everyone working from home that kind of cultural aspect of the company is much harder to absorb and I think like that so I think I think I think actually it's you know I could I could imagine saying this and having other people that work at the company that have not absorbed that cultural side of it being like what you're talking about because they haven't seen or experienced that which is a shame, actually, because, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories of a lot of good years of, you know, people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the projects that I've been involved in have been trying to almost recreate a new idea of culture because, you know, the, the nature of hybrid working, we're never going to get to that previous utopia of everybody being back. Yeah, it's really sad. It's incredibly difficult, isn't it? And, and, it's, and it's, a real, it's a real shame, I think. Um, and, yeah, obviously, I want to also say massive amounts of talent, really great work. But it's all, but you know, all of that is built off the fact that it started with good people. <laughs> it's the roots. So that's my answer. Yeah, that's the foundation, isn't it? Couldn't agree more. Uh, Sana, I'd be remiss not for me to leave you out of this question. What's the thing that keeps you here? I think it's the same answer as Russell, to be honest. It's the people. It's the great foundation of teamwork. There's a lot of support. There's just generally a great camaraderie between everyone. We all sort of you know, stick together when it comes to deliveries or if anyone needs any help. And it was it was easier to see pre-lockdown, pre-COVID, because everyone was in the office. It was There was always a buzz out on the floors, less so now just because of the hybrid working. 
but it's still there in bits and pieces and a lot of the old guard or pre-COVID teens that do come in bring that and so the the newer recent hires get to see a little bit more of it but I agree with Russell it's all about the people in working as a team and bringing it all to the table. Yeah yeah thank you. I think I think another thing that connects to that is I think frame stores and, and again it's harder now than ever but I think I've always felt when I've been at frame store that I was with a group of people trying to make something creative together not trying to like get through the day. I mean, sometimes you have rough days, but when everyone has a sort of a shared communal spirit of trying to achieve a goal, especially when it's something to do with storytelling, there's something magical about that, I think. And, I, and there, there's a lot of time, I think, there's a lot of times at Framestore where I've really felt that. Yeah, it's not the kind of industry where you just kind of clock in and clock out, is it? That's what's so hard about it. Everything, it's, it's really hard because everything takes a lot of time, costs a lot of money, but it's also slightly vocational. Yeah. It's kind of like the worst model ever. <laughs> So still on, uh, still on uh, all things frame store. This is an interesting one because the answer to this question a few times on the pod has been um, his dark materials. Actually, so you're welcome to use that as your answer. But um, if you could recommend one show that truly showcases frame store at its best, what would it be? I mean, I'm going to say his dark materials, but I, I'll try and give it a good reason. I'm just going to use it because it's something that I'm so familiar with. First of all, that's a project that we took on completely, the whole thing, which is a massive creature show with not the highest budget in the world. Yet they had the guts to take it on and say, we'll do it and we'll do it justice, which I think is amazing. The second thing is, is from my experience, I went out on a shoot where I basically had to turn around and say, I work for you, yet my job is now in the interests of the show. So I have to now occasionally make decisions that are going to be tough for Framestore. And they accepted that that is what they were going to do. And they stuck by it. And I never had a day ever when I got pulled into a room and told, you've got to bend because of Framestore never happened which is ethically amazing you know in terms of the to the client and you know and to the benefits of the show which is what everybody's trying to do a good job with the next thing is no other company does nuanced characters characters is important not creatures characters that drive forward story you know there are, there's, there's other places that have done it but we always do it and we always smash it out of the park you know, if you go through from Paddington to Fantastic Beasts to what we're doing here to the amazing work they're doing commercials, you know, they're characters and they're involved in story. They're storytelling-based company. And then I think the spirit of everybody, even when it was really tough, I think the spirit of the teams was so amazing that that also embodies the company. I think it's good, but I could probably give you the same answer because of Paddington, because of any show that's really character-centric. I just happen to know HGM so well because I've thought about that alone and my kids for five years. I mean, forgive my ignorance, but um, going through all three seasons of the, the trilogy, was it the team consistent? You know, were you coming back to a lot of new faces every time you returned for a new a new season? There are a few common faces, uh, not everybody. Obviously, you know, people move on to other shows, people get fatigued from one show, want to move on to another. But there were definitely, so Rob Harrington, who is my living, breathing angel. He has he did every season with me. I've done most of my jobs I've ever done with him, actually. And so, so him... Um, had Liam Russell, animation supervising for all seasons. Maureen in um, Montreal and a chunk of her team, they returned every season, which was lovely. Uh, Claire Denwood, she was involved in nearly every season in some way. Um, and lots of other people, like I'm just, obviously now I've made the mistake of starting to name people. So now I've not named people and now I seem like I hate them. Oh, so no, I'm going to back, back, back away from that <laughs> one. Um, but, you know, like, again, David Simpson was a linchpin for the first two seasons. And I was really sad when we didn't have him. But then he got replaced by Gav McKenzie, who's amazing. Yes, lots of people and they were all brilliant. And I missed them all on the show. Yeah, I, I bet on the kind of client side and uh, obviously the frame store side as well. Not having that, that regular camaraderie and connection must be hard. I think you like to think that when you do a show that returns, that everybody is going to be like, yes, we're back. Let's do it again. It was the best. But to be, but I was actually surprised by how many people really genuinely wanted to sign up for it again. Um, that was quite a testament to not me, but the leadership in the office who were dealing with them, like Rob, like David, like Gav, like, you know, the guys in Montreal, like Damien, etc. Do you think it will be back in some way, shape or form? You know, these, these great shows have a tendency to come back and kind of, you know, prequels, they take a character and run with it like they've done with Star Wars stuff. Yeah, uh, it's less of a, a universe that you can do it with than Star Wars, but there is um, there is a second trilogy. The first book takes place uh, when Lyra is a baby, and then the next two happen after. Uh, the third one is still being written. I know that there is an appetite by the people that have made it to go again, 
it just comes down to broadcasters and money as everything tends to if it did happen I would put my hand up straight away. Amazing, amazing. Well, I was going to say you heard it here first, but you might not have heard it here first. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've ever said it. But I'm going to say it anyway. Um, yeah, I'm not that familiar with the books. I always say, forgive my ignorance, but it's good to know. So uh, what's a common myth about your job, Russell? What's a common myth about your your role or field of expertise that people often get wrong? I'm not really sure what the misconceptions would be. I mean, I know there's the misconceptions about visual effects. I mean, they're always the same, which is that we use computers to make our life easy rather than computers make our life hard, life hard and we spend our time trying to make them do what we need. A common misconception is normally actually an underestimation of how much we can offer. I think a really experienced, really good production side VFX supervisor can offer such a wide range to a production. I can't think of many characters on a shoot that interact with more stages of production than a visual effects supervisor. So if you think about my role, I interact with the showrunners, screenwriters. I interact with costume and makeup. I interact with props, production design and the art department, previs, the ADs, the camera team, the lighting crew, the grips, the gaffers, anybody who puts up a green screen. Uh, I interact with the actors, obviously, a lot, the cast. By the time you work it out, there isn't anybody that you don't have to have some kind of meaningful input with. And that is quite rare. And it's a luxury and it's really fun. And it also makes it very, very hard because it becomes political or whatever. I think there's a an old idea of VFX supervisors sitting by craft services saying yes or no to doing something and that's it. That's really interesting because that goes back to what you said about soft skills and people skills and communication and actually having that skill set nailed down. Yeah, that's actually a great answer to, to the question, Russell. I mean, I knew about that eye of the storm role of the VFX suit, but I never knew it ran that deep that you're literally speaking to wardrobe and makeup and gaffers and engineers. I mean, that's sort of the heart of it. And I think you could connect this back to my accountability comment as well. I think you can be a VFX super who does the, the assumed role of sitting at craft services and just saying yes or no and trying to not be accountable. If you're prepared to be accountable and really make things work, then yeah, there's so much scope for interaction. So continuing this thread, Russell, in terms of lessons learned, because I'm sure you've learned plenty, uh, not just on his dark materials, but you know, across your, your two decade long career, what's the most important lesson that you've learned? Would you think, what would you put up there as the big one? Don't ever give an answer unless you actually have worked it out. I think there's a big misconception and this isn't a misconception of the people you're briefing or the people you're working with but it's a big misconception of people about themselves that if they don't have an answer immediately they're failing i'm very open about this when i started in ia there was a point in time where quite rapidly i became the head of a nuke department it was a small nuke department but you know i was young and i was been made a vfx supervisor and head of the nuke department and i was surrounded at that point by people that had been doing it for 20 years and i'd been doing it for six People like William Bartlett and, you know, just all the like Christian Mance and Mike McKee and all of these brilliant people. And I got hit with a huge wave of imposter syndrome, like absolutely massive. And it totally floored me. It was a proper mental health dip, genuinely, because I was like, I found it, I really struggled. And the outcome of that was I overmanaged everybody, micromanaged people. I gave people answers. Like someone would say, what's wrong with the shot? And I'd just start speaking. And there was about three months where I was a really terrible boss. Like I can be really, very, very open about it because I think everybody has that phase when they step into a new role and they have this sort of flood of sort of self-doubt and trying to like, you know, push through it and all of this stuff. And it's all totally normal. And it was that process. And also having people kind of like Mike McGee help nurture me through that in the end. It made it very clear to me that like one of the most important things is preparing to be wrong, saying I don't know, asking for advice taking a minute, you know, I will say to people kind of like, you know, when someone shows me a sort, I'll say, I need to go away and look at that for a bit and come back to you. Because, you know, if I did know everything straight away, it would be very strange. I'd just be doing it all myself. Nothing wrong with that. There's something about that weight of expectation, isn't there? When you take on a, a, a senior gig like that. I think, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's even taking on a senior gig. I think it's taking on any gig. I think there's this, I think there's this thing. So, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome a lot. If you don't feel imposter syndrome, you're not pushing yourself. You're kind of not anywhere. You're supposed to scare yourself constantly about work you're supposed to be putting yourself into a position where you're like unless you want a comfortable life and you just want to sit back that is totally valid as well career isn't everything family should be everything probably all the time if work fulfills you you should be scaring yourself you should feel self-doubt they are normal you should talk to people around you about it because they should be your friends who encourage you 
and you should be in a workplace that fosters confidence building. And I, I experienced massive amounts of imposter syndrome, mental health dip, and there were people that helped bring me out of that, and that was my family, my friends, and work, which is why I like Framestore. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, imposter syndrome, it just keeps you humble, I find, as well. It keeps you, you know, you don't believe your own hype too much, depending on if there's any hype to believe. But I think it does keep you grounded as well. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can, in your experience, Russell, send you wayward. I don't want to get into some big mental health episode, but I think there is a huge and very important message in the idea that things are things are meant to be bumpy. You shouldn't try and smooth your experience out so you don't feel any bumps. You should have dips and troughs and you should just have people along your way that you that care about you, that you, you ride it all with. But it's the kind of getting over the bumps and riding out the dips that make you progress and feel good and feel like you've got self-worth and pride and you know that's how you get it all. That support network is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. Speaking of support networks, who has been, and this can be a question to both of you, actually. So, Russell, who's been your most important professional mentor? I mean, you might not want to name one. You can name a few notables if you want, but who would you cite as being up there, do you think? I'm just sort of surrounded by so many of them. You know, in terms of mentors, I find that really difficult to answer. I think support and comfort. Like, for example, knowing Mel Sullivan is in the company. Because she's just an, like, as a human, she is amazing. And knowing that that's there is really, really brilliant. Rob Harrington, you know, having kind of like a person that is just that lovely to work with and that egoless, you know, has been amazing. And, you know, I, there's just been, honestly, like I've, now I've done it again. I've said two people, and now there's 50 people that I haven't mentioned that would all be equally valid. But yeah, I, there's just so many people. And it's, I think it's like, I've never really had what I would consider to be a mentor who is one person that I would go to. I've always had loads of micro mentors and I think it's all about having your, your mind be open enough to accepting advice and accepting, you know, or appreciating, just look, watching someone and go like, I really appreciate how they do what they do. You know, sometimes it can just be observing. They don't need to say a word. You can just watch and go like, that's brilliant. And actually a, a lot of the crew on Dark Materials, you know, on the production side, people like Jane and, you know, they've been amazing. So yeah, lots of people. Mentors can come from any walk of life, can't they, I guess, from any direction. I like your take on micro-mentors. I'm going to borrow that. I'm going to take that for sure. How about you, Sana? Who would you cite as being a mentor or a micro-mentor? I don't think, again, a single mentor doesn't really quite cover it for me either. I also have more of like a support system. And coming from production, that's mainly other coordinators that are on the show with me someone that I can lean on, learn from, ask questions, have a safe space with. So there's people like, from His Dark Materials, there were people like um, Megan, Radhika, Joseph, all the way top to Carolina, who is our line, my line producer in the animation department. People that were there for me made sure I was on the right path. They were always approachable, that I could always go to. Sean Cahill, who's a really good friend, we came up through the running scheme together, is another one that I lean on and I get support from. And it's kind of like a mentor. I like to watch her work as well, see how she works through and thinks things through production-wise. I was really thankful to work with J-Dubs, Jan Willem, on um, Bosco for my very first project. And we had Annette Willems as our producer. Eva Adams was a coordinator and they were great people to learn from. They really knew the trade. They'd been here for ages. They understood the Framestore pipeline. So that was a great introduction into Framestore and production for myself. So I think if I was to have mentors, it would be those three people that really let me in and showed me the VFX world, really. Great, thank you. And uh, yeah, I've never had so many names thrown at me for that question from both of you, actually. I feel like it's a kind of Oscar-style speech there. It's always just like one one person. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. I think the interesting thing is if people give you space just to exist around them, whether it's watching them or talking to them or learning from them, I just think people just like, you just need to be allowed into those spaces to do things. Next question, Russell, is what underrated tool or tools are indispensable for your job? So not the obvious, the underrated ones. What would you call out there? Another difficult question, arguably. I mean, I'm just going to go back into soft skills again, like listening, empathy, awareness, kindness, you know, remembering that, like, for example, I really try every time that I do a job to come out of the other end of this job, having never really shouted angrily at anyone. I think I managed it mostly. 
I mean, I've probably screwed up a few times, but my job is basically to absorb attrition, deal with it, give comments, and then vent the attrition out some other way. You know, whether it's with other friends or whether it's with colleagues and peers or people that aren't on a project. You know, your, your job is not to pass, and I think this can be a mistake, a leadership mistake. My job is not to pass on stress. You know, a lot of people can go like, you know, they get given a weight and then you just give the weight to the next person. That's not my job. My job is to get the weight, reduce the weight and give it in little bits to people. Having the self-awareness, I think, to do that and having the kindness to do that. And I'll tell you one other thing, I think, is actively watching things, not passively watching things. And I mean, not necessarily, it could be art, it could be photography, it could be TV shows. But I spend quite a lot of time when I watch things. If I watch something and I like it, I'll watch it again. But my mission of watching it again is to watch it to appreciate why I liked it, not just watch it again, like actively watch it like, oh, I love the rhythm of the way these camera movements work, or I love the timing of the lines, or I love the, I love the cutting, or I love the tone, you know, but active watching so is a big one. It's almost like mindful watching, isn't it? It's like... It's absolutely, exactly. That's probably the better way of wording it, yeah. I was only just listening to a podcast this morning about mindful walking and mindful showering and actually how you've described that is literally mindful watching that's the only reason i use the term what is it as a saying in mindfulness isn't there it's like wash the plates to wash the plates don't wash the plates to have clean plates you wash it to go through the process of washing plates yeah yeah i think being active in when you and appreciating why you love things even if it doesn't teach you anything specific it gives you a again it gives you a perspective on why you're doing things absolutely love that that's brilliant i don't think i'll watch a, a show in the same way again after this podcast or so well i, I watched the i watched the bear so you've seen The Bear? I've watched the first episode of The Bear. I'm into it. Okay, so I watched The Bear. I fell in love with that show. And then I've watched it like three times since. All for the all for the purpose of not just like going, oh, I really like the experience of sitting there and just like absorbing it. I went through the process of like really trying to work out why it was so good. Does that come from a place of, as you say, being a creative, a director of VFX Soup? Or does that come from just being a pure, like almost cinephile kind of lover of art? Or is it a bit of a blend of both? Just again, out of interest. I think it's important not to over-intellectualize stuff as well. Like, you know, I'm always really jealous. Like, I'm not a great artist at all. Like, you know, there's loads of people that can draw and paint and do all that kind of jazz, but that's not me. Like, you know, everything I always did was physical. I never kind of painted a picture that made anyone go, well, you're amazing. And I think partially that's maybe why is like, if, if you're not, if something isn't like, if you can't paint the picture, studying the picture is kind of good to understand why it's great so that you can help other people do it. So maybe it's that. That's a guess, by the way. No, no, I'll take it. It's a good answer. So into the advice section, and it'll be a question to both of you, is what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in your field or wanting to do what you do, Russell? What's, what's the golden nugget you'd pass down? Don't assume that the normal path is the only path. That's one. And don't assume you can get to the top of the mountain without climbing a mountain. They're my two. Yeah, I think they're probably two of the main ones. I think... Because otherwise what you can do is you can, enter, you can enter a role with too much expectation and it can disappoint you. Whereas I think if you, ex if you expect to have to work and you have to kind of grind a little bit and you have to absorb like loads of stuff from loads of other people and you don't know everything, I think if you go step at a time, that will always serve you better and will move you faster than being resistant to that. And my answer to the kind of don't follow the norm, don't assume the only way is that is that your external passions and interests and communication with people, socializing, a bit of networking. I hate that word, but a bit of that. I don't mean going to like a bar and saying like, hey, who do you work for? But I mean, as in like, just like, just like lots of communicating, being active in those spaces and having your own passions can somehow lead to like really weird, like progressions at different times. You're right. It's appreciating that any pursuit career is very squiggly. It can go in all manner of directions regardless and being present in that moment that part of the process rather than ex having that like you say expectation that you're going to be a rip roaring success overnight what about you sana what's your uh, take on that question any advice for somebody looking to pursue a role in on the production side i think it's the same with that you'll have to grind you'll have to put in the work and um, you have to be patient and you have to be ready to work as part of a team it's the industry that we work in, the work, especially in production that we do, is very much you will get there as a team or you won't get there at all because there's so many different facets and departments. You really have to be able to gel and you might not get on with everyone. Not everyone will become your best friend, but as long as you can remain civil and professional, it gets you far enough. It gets you 
all the way with helping deliver a show and starting the next part of your career and path. I think that's what I would say. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you, Sana. Yeah, particularly that piece around being civil and not expecting everybody to think you're the, the bee's knees, you know, not everybody's going to be your biggest fan, but just keep your head up, keep doing good work and don't compromising your morals and ethics. I think that's really, really good advice. I think, I think it's good to just assume that you're not the smartest person in a room when you enter a room. Yeah. You know, and to be honest, I've got to be honest, like, I don't always do that. Like sometimes my ego totally takes over and I'm like, blah, 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 you know, but <laughs> I think you have to, um, I think it's more healthy to go in and just assume that you're going to get caught out. I remember once going to a dinner party. I said, that sounds way more highfalutin. I went to like, a, I went to like a friend of a friend's house and they were having dinner. Um, and, and I, and I started kind of like, this was like about like five years ago. And I started like just chatting a load of stuff about my perspective on AI. And it turned out that like one of the guys that was at the table was kind of like an actual kind of AI deep learning coder. And I was like, as soon as he started speaking, I was like, I feel very small right now, you know, like, yeah, rewind. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's okay to ask questions to not always know the answer. Yeah. And just being able to accept that as well will come in very handy. Yeah. Curiosity is king. Honestly, it's an absolute superpower. People think it is like, you know, like you're saying, you know, that accepts you're not the, not the smartest person in the room or, you know, we talked about this earlier about not being the expert, you know, assembling a team that fill those skills. Curiosity isn't just about, I don't know a thing. It's literally power. I think it's another underrated skill. I think having kids actually, from my side, sort of made me realise certain things. So, you know, there's things sort of to do with when you're thinking about your kids and their education and how they're growing up and you start looking at kind of like AI and all of the crazy nonsense that's around that's going to be really disruptive. And really all it comes down to, and I spoke to a friend of mine who's a teacher as well, he said a very similar thing and he said, really, you know, your, your job with your kids is to help them foster creative thinking and curiosity and ask why and ask how and ask if and do all those things. And I don't know why you assume that that's any different when you're grown up. You know, the same answer. We should hold on to that, shouldn't we? Yeah. So we're into the kind of the final parts of our, our first part of this episode, Russ, is what's one question you wish I'd asked you and how would you have answered it? One of my favourite questions on the pod. I don't know. <laughs> That's a very disarming question. I know, right? Tapping into vanity here. You know, what's the one thing you wanted to talk about that I completely didn't ask you? I don't know. I think you've done a really good job of covering nearly everything that... Well, I think you've done a really good job of having a good set of questions that cover a lot of stuff. Well, did I cover it all bases? I mean, I might well have. I don't know. No, I don't really have an answer to you. I think, you know... No, I don't. I think it was... I think there's a load of good questions in there. That's right. There's loads of stuff that, you know, if you ask me, I'd talk for hours about. Brilliant. Well, we're definitely not done with his dark materials. Uh, Sana is, I can see she's itching to get stuck into part two. So uh, we'll be handing over very shortly, Sana, I promise. But that's absolutely fair, Ross. No problem at all. A couple of kind of almost whimsical questions to, to close us out. The first one is, who would you like to hear on the podcast and why? So who would you like to be in the, the hot seat? From Framestore. From Framestore. Rob Harrington. Rob Harrington. Mostly because of how uncomfortable it would make him. <laughs> <laughs> he is a beautiful man. Hopefully he's a regular listener. I saw your eyes light up when uh, Russell mentioned uh, Rob's name, Sana. I can just imagine his face now. Got him. He's on the hit list. Thank you. He's a fabulous human being, though. And the final, final question, actually, I've got another throwaway question to chuck in, but I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone, Russell, which is if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Marks and Spencer's Raspberry Royale trifle. Wow. There you go. Decadent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't last very long as well, so. <laughs> I'd only be doing it for about two weeks. Not one for a steady diet. No, it's not. <laughs> wow, when did you discover that treat? Have you got early memories of uh, the Raspberry Royale? When I, when I was a kid. Depressingly, they've sort of started to like not be stocked much. So when I find one, it's like finding a unicorn. It's like a nice hunt. <laughs> so, yeah, anybody listening, if you want to uh, cheer Russell up when he's next in the office, turn up with a Raspberry Royale. But not too many of them. You can get into a bad habit with this. When I was directing stuff on Dark Materials, the runners all really learnt that you could keep me going with chocolate. <laughs> and and on the last day when I was really tired, they made me a hot chocolate, which I asked for. And they made me, actually me and my friend Paul a hot chocolate. I didn't really realise why it was so good, but they'd made it by melting 13 Freddo bars and a bag of M&Ms into it. I mean, my friend went to sleep almost immediately and I got a really bad twitch. My God. Really bad. So yeah, it's not good to get rumours like that about yourself. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's, let's maybe avoid that then. Thank you, Russell. Uh, Sana, anything you want to throw in as your 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 uh, food that you would eat for the rest of your life if you could? Potatoes in any shape or form, really. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fries, jacket potato, potato wedges, you name it. All the genres. All of them. 
Nice. Much harder to bring in to cheer you up at work, but I want to see people start. I want to see people start bringing you jacket potatoes every day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Bar that, being Glaswegian, I do love a bottle of Iron Brew. Nice Iron Brew, true to form. Yep. <laughs> true to the stereotype. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Um, the question I throw in at the end is around music because uh, I've, I asked on episode one, Sergio Gonzalez, the, the question he wished I'd asked him. And he said, oh, yeah, I haven't asked me what music I listen to when I work. So I had the great idea to start a Frame Store podcast playlist on Spotify. Then it turns out not everybody listens to music while they work, but I keep asking the question to fill out the playlist. So, Russell, when you're not souping and on set, what's in your ear goggles? I actually do listen to music on set a lot of the time. What I do is I name all my playlists by a period of what I'm doing. So I've got an HGM season one, season two, season three, season three post. Now I'm in my hiatus. It's like, what's, what am I listening to now? My brain's kind of sort of like loosened up a bit. I'm going to find you something good on here that I would say I've been listening to a lot. Uh, there, okay, so I'm going to go see this lady on Friday. Her name is Polly Pulizma, and it's a song called She Moves in Secret Ways. It's a very, very good song. That's a, that, that's a song. If you want one song to put on your playlist, that's what I've been listening to this week. Well, that's the one. You're welcome to have a couple. I'll give you a couple more off my list then. Let's go. Uh, a song called My Mind by Yebba. That's really good. Lady's got a good voice. I'll give you one more. Uh, Grown Up by Danny Brown. Ah, good tune. Well, in, in keeping with the HDM trilogy, we've got a trilogy of tunes there from Russell Dodgson as well for the playlist. So they will be coming to a playlist near you. Where do I find that playlist? I'll send you the list. It's very eclectic. There's a lot There's a lot of randomness on there, but it's a good playlist. Okay, lovely. Anyway, Russell, thank you for your time and to you, Sana. We'll be back on Thursday where Sana takes on the reins and interviews Russell. We'll leave it there and we'll see you on Thursday. See ya. Well, that was part one. Join us for part two of the Framestore podcast this Thursday where Sana takes over proceedings as co-host and interviews Russell. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>